Welcome to the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 4, Section 22. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 22. Should anyone object first that the lawful ministers of Christ will be no less perplexed in the discharge of their duty, because the absolution which depends on faith will always be equivocal, and, secondly, that sinners will receive no comfort at all, or cold comfort, because the minister, who is not a fit judge of their faith, is not certain of their absolution, we are prepared with an answer. They say that no sins are remitted by the priest, but such sins as he is cognizant of. Thus, according to them, remission depends on the judgment of the priest, and unless he accurately discriminate as to who are worthy of pardon, the whole procedure is null and void. In short, the power of which they speak is a jurisdiction annexed to examination to which pardon and absolution are restricted. Here no firm footing can be found, nay, there is a profound abyss, because where confession is not complete, the hope of pardon also is defective. Next, the priest himself must necessarily remain in suspense, while he knows not whether the sinner gives a faithful enumeration of his sins. Lastly, such is the rudeness and ignorance of priests, that the greater part of them are in no respect fitter to perform this office than a cobbler to cultivate the fields, while almost all others have good reason to suspect their own fitness. Hence the perplexity and doubt as to the popish absolution, from their choosing to found it on the person of the priest, and not on his person only, but on his knowledge, so that he can only judge of what is laid before him, investigated and ascertained. Now, if any should ask at these good doctors whether the sinner is reconciled to God when some sins are remitted, I know not what answer they could give unless that they should be forced to confess that whatever the priest pronounces with regard to the remission of sins, which have been enumerated to him, will be unavailing so long as others are not exempted from condemnation. On the part of the penitent, again, it is hence obvious in what a state of pernicious anxiety his conscience will be held, because while he leans on what they call the discernment of the priest, he cannot come to any decision from the word of God. From all these absurdities the doctrine which we deliver is completely free, for absolution is conditional, allowing the sinner to trust that God is propitious to him, provided he sincerely seek expiation in the sacrifice of Christ, and accept of the grace offered to him. Thus he cannot err who, in the capacity of a herald, promulgates what has been dictated to him from the word of God. The sinner, again, can receive a clear and sure absolution when, in regard to embracing the grace of Christ, the simple condition annexed is in terms of the general rule of our master himself, a rule impiously spurned by the papacy. Quote, according to your faith, be it unto you. Unquote. Matthew 9, verse 29. Section 23. The absurd jargon which they make of the doctrine of Scripture concerning the power of the keys, I have promised to expose elsewhere. The proper place will be in treating of the government of the church, in Book 4, Chapter 12. Meanwhile, let the reader remember how absurdly they rest to auricular and secret confession what was said by Christ partly of the preaching of the gospel and partly of excommunication. Wherefore, when they object that the power of loosing was given to the apostles, and that this power priests exercise by remitting sins acknowledged to them, it is plain that the principle which they assume is false and frivolous. For the absolution which is subordinate to faith is nothing else than an evidence of pardon derived from the free promise of the gospel, while the other absolution, which depends on the discipline of the church, has nothing to do with secret sins. 
but is more a matter of example for the purpose of removing the public offense given to the church. As to their diligence in searching up and down for passages by which they may prove that it is not sufficient to confess sins to God alone, or to laymen, unless the priests take cognizance, it is vile and disgraceful. For when the ancient fathers advise sinners to disburden themselves to their pastor, we cannot understand them to refer to a recital which was not then in use. Then, so unfair are Lombard and others like-minded, that they seem intentionally to have devoted themselves to spurious books, that they might use them as a cloak to deceive the simple. They indeed acknowledge truly that as forgiveness always accompanies repentance, no obstacle properly remains after the individual is truly penitent, though he may not have actually confessed, and therefore that the priest does not so much remit sins as pronounce and declare that they are remitted though in the term declaring they insinuate a gross error, surrogating ceremony in place of doctrine. But in pretending that he who has already obtained pardon before God is acquitted in the face of the church, they unseasonably apply to the special use of every individual that which we have already said was designed for common discipline when the offense of a more heinous and notorious transgression was to be removed. Shortly after they pervert and destroy their previous moderation by adding that there is another mode of remission, namely, by the infliction of penalty and satisfaction, in which they arrogate to their priests the right of dividing what God has everywhere promised to us entire. While he simply requires repentance and faith, their division or exception is altogether blasphemous. For it is just as if the priest, assuming the office of tribune, were to interfere with God and try to prevent him from admitting to his favor by his mere liberality anyone who had not previously lain prostrate at the tribunitial bench and there been punished. Section 24. The whole comes to this. When they wish to make God the author of this fictitious confession, their vanity is proved, as I have shown their falsehood in expounding the few passages which they cite. But while it is plain that the law was imposed by men, I say that it is both tyrannical and insulting to God, who, in binding consciences to his word, would have them free from human rule. Then, when confession is prescribed as necessary to obtain pardon, which God wished to be free, I say that the sacrilege is altogether intolerable, because nothing belongs more peculiarly to God than the forgiveness of sins in which our salvation consists. I have, moreover, shown that this tyranny was introduced when the world was sunk in shameful barbarism. Besides, I have proved that the law is pestiferous, inasmuch as when the fear of God exists, it plunges men into despair, and when there is security soothing itself with vain flattery, it blunts it the more. Lastly, I have explained that all the mitigations which they employ have no other tendency than to entangle, obscure, and corrupt the pure doctrine, and cloak their iniquities with deceitful colors. Section 25. In repentance they assign a third place to satisfaction, all their absurd talk as to which can be refuted in one word. They say that it is not sufficient for the penitent to abstain from past sins, and change his conduct for the better, unless he satisfy God for what he has done, and that there are many helps by which we may redeem sins, such as tears, fastings, oblations, and offices of charity that by them the Lord is to be propitiated, by them the debts due to divine justice are to be paid, by them our faults are to be compensated, by them pardon is to be deserved, for though in the riches of his mercy he has forgiven the guilt, he yet, as a just discipline, retains the penalty, and that this penalty must be bought off by satisfaction. The sum of the whole comes to this that we indeed obtain pardon of our sins from the mercy of God, but still by the intervention of the merit of works by which the evil of our sins is compensated, and due satisfaction made to divine justice. To such false views I oppose the free forgiveness of sins, one of the doctrines most clearly taught in Scripture. First, what is forgiveness but a gift of mere liberality? A creditor is not said to forgive when he declares by granting a discharge that the money has been paid to him but when, without any payment, through voluntary kindness, he expunges the debt. And why is the term gratis, or free, afterwards added, but to take away all idea of satisfaction? With what confidence, then, do they still set up their satisfactions, which are thus struck down as with a thunderbolt? What, when the Lord proclaims by Isaiah, quote, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins, unquote, does he not plainly declare that the cause and foundation of forgiveness is to be sought from his goodness alone? 
Besides, when the whole of Scripture bears this testimony to Christ, that through his name the forgiveness of sins is to be obtained, Acts 10, verse 43, does it not plainly exclude all other names? How then do they teach that it is obtained by the name of satisfaction? Let them not deny that they attribute this to satisfactions, though they bring them in as subsidiary aids. For when Scripture says, By the name of Christ, it means that we are to bring nothing, pretend nothing of our own, but lean entirely on the recommendation of Christ. Thus Paul, after declaring that, quote, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, unquote, immediately adds the reason and the method, quote, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20. Section 26. But with their usual perverseness, they maintain that both the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation take place at once when we are received into the favor of God through Christ in baptism. That in lapses after baptism, we must rise again by means of satisfactions. That the blood of Christ is of no avail unless insofar as it is dispensed by the keys of the church. I speak not of a matter as to which there can be any doubt, for this impious dogma is declared in the plainest terms, in the writings not of one or two, but of the whole schoolmen. Their master, after acknowledging, according to the doctrine of Peter, that Christ, quote, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, unquote, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, immediately modifies the doctrine by introducing the exception that in baptism all the temporal penalties of sin are relaxed, but that after baptism they are lessened by means of repentance, the cross of Christ, and our repentance thus cooperating together. St. John speaks very differently, quote, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, unquote. Quote, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake, unquote. 1 John 2, verses 1, 2, and 12. He certainly is addressing believers, and while setting forth Christ as the propitiation for sins, shows them that there is no other satisfaction by which an offended God can be propitiated or appeased. He says not. God was once reconciled to you by Christ. Now seek other methods. But he makes him a perpetual advocate, who always by his intercession reinstates us in his Father's favor, a perpetual propitiation by which sins are expiated. For what was said by another John will ever hold true, quote, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world, unquote. John 1, verse 29. He, I say, takes them away, and no other. That is, since he alone is the Lamb of God, he alone is the offering for our sins. He alone is expiation. He alone is satisfaction. For though the right and power of pardoning properly belongs to the Father, when he is distinguished from the Son, as has already been seen, Christ is here exhibited in another view, as transferring to himself the punishment due to us, and wiping away our guilt in the sight of God. Whence it follows that we could not be partakers of the expiation accomplished by Christ, were he not possessed of that honor of which those who try to appease God by their compensations seek to rob him. Section 27 Here it is necessary to keep two things in view, that the honor of Christ be preserved entire and unimpaired, and that the conscience, assured of the pardon of sin, may have peace with God. Isaiah says that the Father, quote, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, unquote, that, quote, with his stripes we are healed, unquote. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Peter, repeating the same thing, in other words, says that he, quote, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, unquote, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Paul's words are, quote, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, unquote, quote, being made a curse for us, unquote, Romans 8, verse 3, and Galatians 3, verse 13. In other words, the power and curse of sin was destroyed in his flesh when he was offered as a sacrifice on which the whole weight of our sins was laid with their curse and execration with the fearful judgment of God and condemnation to death. Here there is no mention of the vain dogma that after the initial cleansing no man experiences the efficacy of Christ's passion in any other way than by means of satisfying penance. We are directed to the satisfaction of Christ alone for every fall now call to mind their pestilential dogma, that the grace of God is effective only in the first forgiveness of sins. But if we afterwards fall, our works cooperate in obtaining the second pardon. 
If these things are so, do the properties above attributed to Christ remain entire? How immense the difference between the two propositions, that our iniquities were laid upon Christ, that in his own person he might expiate them, and that they are expiated by our works, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and that God is to be propitiated by works. Then, in regard to pacifying the conscience, what pacification will it be to be told that sins are redeemed by satisfactions? How will it be able to ascertain the measure of satisfaction? It will always doubt whether God is propitious, will always fluctuate, always tremble. Those who rest satisfied with petty satisfactions form too contemptible an estimate of the justice of God, and little consider the grievous heinousness of sin as shall afterwards be shown. Even were we to grant that they can buy off some sins by due satisfaction, still what will they do while they are overwhelmed with so many sins that not even a hundred lives, though wholly devoted to the purpose, could suffice to satisfy for them? We may add that all the passages in which the forgiveness of sins is declared refer not only to catechumens, but to the regenerate children of God, to those who have long been nursed in the bosom of the church. That embassy which Paul so highly extols, quote, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, unquote, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, is not directed to strangers, but to those who had been regenerated long before. Setting satisfactions altogether aside, he directs us to the cross of Christ. Thus, when he writes to the Colossians that Christ had, quote, made peace through the blood of his cross, unquote, quote, to reconcile all things unto himself, unquote, he does not restrict it to the moment at which we are received into the church, but extends it to our whole course. This is plain from the context, where he says that in him, quote, we have redemption by his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, unquote, Colossians 1, verse 14. It is needless to collect more passages, as they are ever occurring. Section 28. Here they take refuge in the absurd distinction that some sins are venial and others mortal, that for the latter a weighty satisfaction is due, but that the former are purged by easier remedies by the Lord's Prayer, the sprinkling of holy water, and the absolution of the Mass. Thus they insult and trifle with God. And yet, though they have the terms venial and mortal sin continually in their mouth, they have not yet been able to distinguish the one from the other, except by making impiety and impurity of heart to be venial sin. We, on the contrary, taught by the Scripture standard of righteousness and unrighteousness, declare that, quote, the wages of sin is death, unquote, and that, quote, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, unquote. Romans 6, verse 23, and Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The sins of believers are venial, not because they do not merit death, but because by the mercy of God there is, quote, now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, unquote, their sin being not imputed, but effaced by pardon. I know how unjustly they calumniate this our doctrine, for they say it is the paradox of the Stoics, concerning the equality of sins, but we shall easily convict them out of their own mouths. I ask them whether, among those sins which they hold to be mortal, they acknowledge a greater and a less. If so, it cannot follow as a matter of course that all sins which are mortal are equal, since Scripture declares that the wages of sin is death, that obedience to the law is the way of life, the transgression of it the way to death. They cannot evade this conclusion. In such a mass of sins, therefore, how will they find an end to their satisfactions? If the satisfaction for one sin requires one day, while preparing it they involve themselves in more sins, since no man, however righteous, passes one day without falling repeatedly. While they prepare themselves for their satisfactions, number, or rather numbers without number, will be added. Confidence and satisfaction being thus destroyed, what more would they have? How do they still dare to think of satisfying? Section 29. They endeavor, indeed, to disentangle themselves, but it is impossible. They pretend a distinction between penalty and guilt, holding that the guilt is forgiven by the mercy of God, but that though the guilt is remitted, the punishment which divine justice requires to be paid remains. Satisfactions, then, properly relate to the remission of the penalty. How ridiculous this levity! They now confess that the remission of guilt is gratuitous, and yet they are ever and anon telling us to merit it by prayers and tears, and other preparations of every kind. Still, the whole doctrine of Scripture regarding the remission of sins is diametrically opposed to that distinction. 
But although I think I have already done more than enough to establish this, I will subjoin some other passages by which these slippery snakes will be so caught as to be afterwards unable to writhe even the tip of their tail. Quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Unquote. Quote, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Unquote. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 34. What this means we learn from another prophet, when the Lord says, quote, When the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, unquote, quote, All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. Unquote. Quote, Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Unquote. Ezekiel 18, verses 24 and 27. When he declares that he will not remember righteousness, the meaning is that he will take no account of it to reward it. In the same way, not to remember sins is not to bring them to punishment. The same thing is denoted in other passages. Isaiah 38, verse 17, and 44, verse 22, Micah 7, verse 19, and Psalm 32, verse 1. By casting them behind his back, blotting them out as a cloud, casting them into the depths of the sea, not imputing them, hiding them. By such forms of expression, the Holy Spirit has explained his meaning not obscurely, if we would lend a willing ear. Certainly, if God punishes sins, he imputes them. If he avenges, he remembers. If he brings them to judgment, he has not hid them. If he examines, he has not cast them behind his back. If he investigates, he has not blotted them out like a cloud. If he exposes them, he has not thrown them into the depths of the sea. In this way, Augustine clearly interprets, quote, If God has covered sins, he willed not to advert to them. If he willed not to advert, he willed not to animadvert. If he willed not to animadvert, he willed not to punish. He willed not to take knowledge of them, he rather willed to pardon them. Why then did he say that sins were hid, just that they might not be seen? What is meant by God seeing sins but punishing them? Unquote. But let us hear from another prophetical passage on what terms the Lord forgives sins. Quote, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Unquote. Isaiah 1, verse 18. In Jeremiah, again, we read, quote, In those days, and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Unquote. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. Would you briefly comprehend the meaning of these words? Consider what, on the contrary, is meant by these expressions, quote, that transgression is sealed up in a bag, unquote. Quote, that the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid, unquote. That, quote, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, and with the point of a diamond, unquote. Job 14, verse 17, Hosea 13, verse 12, and Jeremiah 22, verse 1. If they mean, as they certainly do, that vengeance will be recompensed, there can be no doubt that by the contrary passages the Lord declares that he renounces all thought of vengeance. Here I must entreat the reader not to listen to any glosses of mine, but only to give some deference to the word of God. Section 30. What, pray, did Christ perform for us if the punishment of sin is still exacted? For when we say that he, quote, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, unquote, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, all we mean is that he endured the penalty and punishment which was due to our sins. This is more significantly declared by Isaiah when he says that the, quote, chastisement or correction of our peace was upon him, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But what is the corruption of our peace, unless it be the punishment due to our sins, and to be paid by us before we could be reconciled to God, had he not become our substitute? Thus you clearly see that Christ bore the punishment of sin, that he might thereby exempt his people from it. And whenever Paul makes mention of the redemption procured by him, in Romans 3, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Ephesians 1, verse 7, Colossians 1, verse 14, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, he calls it, Greek word, Alpha, Pi, Omicron, Lambda, Epsilon, Tau, Zeta, Omega, Sigma, Iota, Sigma, Apolutosis. 
by which he does not simply mean redemption, as it is commonly understood, but the very price and satisfaction of redemption, for which reason he also says that Christ gave himself an, Greek word, alpha, nu, tau, iota, lambda, epsilon, tau, zeta, iota, sigma, antilutsis, ransom for us. Quote, what is propitiation with the Lord, says Augustine, but sacrifice? And what is sacrifice but that which was offered for us in the death of Christ? Unquote. But we have our strongest argument in the injunctions of the Mosaic Law as to expiating the guilt of sin. The Lord does not there appoint this or that method of satisfying, but requires the whole compensation to be made by sacrifice, though he at the same time enumerates all the rites of expiation with the greatest care and exactness. How comes it that he does not at all enjoin works as the means of procuring pardon, but only requires sacrifices for expiation, unless it were his purpose thus to testify that this is the only kind of satisfaction by which his justice is appeased? For the sacrifices which the Israelites then offered were not regarded as human works, but were estimated by their antitype, that is, the sole sacrifice of Christ. The kind of compensation which the Lord receives from us is elegantly and briefly expressed by Hosea. Quote, Take with you words, and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. Unquote. Here is remission. Quote, so will we render the calves of our lips. Unquote. Here is satisfaction. Hosea 14, verse 2. I know that they have still a more subtle evasion by making a distinction between eternal and temporal punishment. But as they define temporal punishment to be any kind of infliction with which God visits either the body or the soul, eternal death only accepted, this restriction avails them little. The passages which we have quoted above say expressly that the terms on which God receives us into favor are these, these, he remits all the punishment which we deserved by pardoning our guilt. And, whenever David or the other prophets ask pardon for their sins, they deprecate punishment. Nay, a sense of the divine justice impels them to this. On the other hand, when they promise mercy from the Lord, they almost always discourse of punishments and the forgiveness of them. Assuredly, when the Lord declares in Ezekiel that he will put an end to the Babylonish captivity, not, quote, for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, unquote, Ezekiel 36, verse 22, he sufficiently demonstrates that both are gratuitous. In short, if we are freed from guilt by Christ, the punishment consequent upon guilt must cease with it. Section 31 but since they also arm themselves with passages of Scripture, let us see what the arguments are which they employ. David, they say, when upbraided by Nathan the prophet for adultery and murder, receives pardon of the sin, and yet by the death of the son born of adultery is afterwards punished. 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. Such punishments, which were to be inflicted after the remission of the guilt, we are taught to ransom by satisfactions. For Daniel exhorted Nebuchadnezzar, quote, Break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Unquote. Daniel 4, verse 27. And Solomon says, quote, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged. Unquote. Proverbs 16, verse 6. And again, quote, Love covereth all sins. Unquote. Proverbs 10, verse 12. This sentiment is confirmed by Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Also in Luke, our Lord says of the woman that was a sinner, quote, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, unquote. Luke 7, verse 47. How perverse and preposterous the judgment they ever form of the doings of God. Had they observed what certainly they ought not to have overlooked, that there are two kinds of divine judgment, they would have seen in the correction of David a very different form of punishment from that which must be thought designed for vengeance. But since it in no slight degree concerns us to understand the purpose of God and the chastisements by which he animadverts upon our sins, and how much they differ from the exemplary punishments which he indignantly inflicts on the wicked and reprobate, I think it will not be improper briefly to glance at it. For the sake of distinction, we may call the one kind of judgment punishment, the other chastisement. In judicial punishment, God is to be understood as taking vengeance on his enemies by displaying his anger against them, confounding, scattering, and annihilating them. By divine punishment, properly so called, let us then understand punishment accompanied with indignation. In judicial chastisement, he is offended, but not in wrath. 
He does not punish by destroying or striking down as with a thunderbolt. Hence it is not properly punishment or vengeance, but correction and admonition. The one is the act of a judge, the other of a father. When the judge punishes a criminal, he animadverts upon the crime and demands the penalty. When a father corrects his son sharply, it is not to mulct or avenge, but rather to teach him and make him more cautious for the future. Chrysostom in his writings employs a simile which is somewhat different, but the same in purport. He says, quote, A son is whipped, and a slave is whipped, but the latter is punished as a slave for his offense. The former is chastised as a freeborn son, standing in need of correction, unquote. The correction of the latter is designed to prove and amend him. That of the former is scourging and punishment. Section 32. To have a short and clear view of the whole matter, we must make two distinctions. First, whenever the infliction is designed to avenge, then the curse and wrath of God displays itself. This is never the case with believers. On the contrary, the chastening of God carries his blessing with it and is an evidence of love, as Scripture teaches. Job 5, verse 17, Proverbs 3, verse 11, and Hebrews 12, verse 5. This distinction is plainly marked throughout the Word of God. All the calamities which the wicked suffer in the present life are depicted to us as a kind of anticipation of the punishment of hell. In these they already see, as from a distance, their eternal condemnation, and so far as they are from being thereby reformed or deriving any benefit, that by such preludes they are rather prepared for the fearful doom which finally awaits them. The Lord chastens his servants sore, but does not give them over unto death. Psalm 118, verse 18. When afflicted, they acknowledge it is good for them, that they may learn his statutes. Psalm 119, verse 71. But as we everywhere read that the saints receive their chastisements with placid mind, so inflictions of the latter kind they always most earnestly deprecated. Quote, O Lord, correct me, unquote, says Jeremiah. Quote, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen, that they know thee not and upon the families that call not on thy name, unquote. Jeremiah 10, verses 24 and 25. David says, quote, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, unquote. Psalm 6, verse 1. There is nothing inconsistent with this in its being repeatedly said that the Lord is angry with his saints when he chastens them for their sins. Psalm 38, verse 7. In like manner, in Isaiah, quote, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Unquote. Isaiah 12, verse 1. Likewise in Habakkuk, quote, In wrath remember mercy. Unquote. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. And in Micah, quote, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. Unquote. Micah 7, verse 9. Here we are reminded not only that those who are justly punished gain nothing by murmuring, but that believers obtain a mitigation of their pain by reflecting on the divine intention. For the same reason he is said to profane his inheritance, and yet we know that he will never profane it. The expression refers not to the counsel or purpose of God in punishing, but to the keen sense of pain, endured by those who are visited with any measure of divine severity. For the Lord not only chastens his people with a slight degree of austerity, but sometimes so wounds them that they seem to themselves on the very eve of perdition. He thus declares that they have deserved his anger, and it is fitting so to do, that they may be dissatisfied with themselves for their sins, may be more careful in their desires to appease God, and anxiously hasten to seek his pardon. Still, at this very time, he gives clearer evidence of his mercy than of his anger. For he who cannot deceive has declared that the covenant made with us in our true Solomon stands fast and will never be broken. Quote, if his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Unquote. Psalm 89, verses 31 through 34. To assure us of this mercy, he says, that the rod with which he will chastise the posterity of Solomon will be the, quote, rod of men, unquote, and, quote, the stripes of the children of men, unquote. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. 
While by these terms he denotes moderation and lenity, he at the same time intimates that those who feel the hand of God opposed to them cannot but tremble and be confounded. How much regard he has to this lenity in chastening his Israel he shows by the prophet, quote, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction, unquote. Isaiah 48, verse 10. Although he tells them that they are chastisements with a view to purification, he adds that even these are so tempered that they are not to be too much crushed by them. And this is very necessary. For the more a man reveres God and devotes himself to the cultivation of piety, the more tender he is in bearing his anger. Psalm 90, verse 11. The reprobate, though they groan under the lash, Yet, because they weigh not the true cause, but rather turn their back as well upon their sins as upon the divine judgment, become hardened in their stupor. Or, because they murmur and kick, and so rebel against their judge, their infatuated violence fills them with frenzy and madness. Believers again, admonished by the rod of God, immediately begin to reflect on their sins, and struck with fear and dread, betake themselves as suppliants to implore mercy. Did not God mitigate the pains by which wretched souls are excruciated, they would give way a hundred times, even at slight signs of his anger. Section 33. The second distinction is that when the reprobate are brought under the lash of God, they begin in a manner to pay the punishment due to his justice. And though their refusal to listen to these proofs of the divine anger will not escape with impunity, still they are not punished with the view of bringing them to a better mind, but only to teach them by dire experience that God is a judge and avenger. The sons of God are beaten with rods, not that they may pay the punishment due to their faults, but that they may thereby be led to repent. Accordingly, we perceive that they have more respect to the future than to the past. I prefer giving this in the words of Chrysostom rather than my own. Quote, His object in imposing a penalty upon us is not to inflict punishment on our sins, but to correct us for the future. Unquote. So also Augustine. Quote, the suffering at which you cry is medicine, not punishment. Chastisement, not condemnation. Do not drive away the rod, if you would not be driven away from the inheritance. No, brethren, that the whole of that misery of the human race under which the world groans is a medicinal pain, not a penal sentence. Unquote. It seemed proper to quote these passages, lest anyone should think the mode of expression which I have used to be novel or uncommon. To the same effect are the indignant terms in which the Lord expostulates with his people for their ingratitude in obstinately despising all his inflictions. In Isaiah he says, quote, why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Unquote. Isaiah 1, verses 5 and 6. But as such passages abound in the prophets, it is sufficient briefly to have shown that the only purpose of God in punishing his church is to subdue her to repentance. Thus, when he rejected Saul from the kingdom, he punished in vengeance. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. And when he deprived David of his child, he chastised for amendment. 2 Samuel 12, verse 18. In this sense, Paul is to be understood when he says, quote, When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. That is, while we as sons of God are afflicted by our Heavenly Father's hand, it is not punishment to confound, but only chastisement to train us. On this subject, Augustine is plainly with us, for he shows that the punishments with which men are equally chastened by God are to be variously considered, because the saints, after the forgiveness of their sins, have struggles and exercises, the reprobate without forgiveness are punished for their iniquity. Enumerating the punishments inflicted on David and other saints, he says it was designed by thus humbling them to prove and exercise their piety. The passage in Isaiah in which it is said, quote, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hands double for all her sins. Unquote. Isaiah 40, verse 2. Proves not that the pardon of sin depends on freedom from punishment. It is just as if he had said, Sufficient punishment has now been exacted. As for their number and heinousness, you have long been oppressed with sorrow and mourning. It is time to send you a message of complete mercy, that your minds may be filled with joy on feeling me to be the Father. 
For God there assumes the character of a father who repents even of the just severity which he has been compelled to use towards his son. Section 34. These are the thoughts with which the believer ought to be provided in the bitterness of affliction. Quote, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Unquote. Quote, the city which is called by my name. Unquote. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Jeremiah 25, verse 29. What could the sons of God do if they thought that the severity which they feel was vengeance? He who is smitten by the hand of God thinks that God is a judge inflicting punishment, cannot conceive of him except as angry and at enmity with him, cannot but detest the rod of God as curse and condemnation, in short, can never persuade himself that he is loved by God while he feels that he is still disposed to inflict punishment upon him. He only profits under the divine chastening, who considers that God, though offended with his sins, is still propitious and favorable to him. Otherwise, the feeling must necessarily be what the psalmist complains that he had experienced, quote, Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy ways, unquote. Also what Moses says, quote, For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told, unquote. Psalm 90, verses 7 through 9. On the other hand, David, speaking of fatherly chastisements to show how believers are more assisted than oppressed by them, thus sings, quote, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked. Unquote. Psalm 94, verses 12 and 13. It is certainly a sore temptation when God, sparing unbelievers and overlooking their crimes, appears more rigid towards his own people. Hence, to solace them, he adds the admonition of the law which teaches them that their salvation is consulted when they are brought back to the right path, whereas the wicked are born headlong in their errors, which ultimately lead to the pit. It matters not whether the punishment is eternal or temporary. For disease, pestilence, famine, and war are curses from God, as much as even the sentence of eternal death, whenever their tendency is to operate as instruments of divine wrath and vengeance against the reprobate. Section 35. All, if I mistake not, now see what view the Lord had in chastening David, namely, to prove that murder and adultery are most offensive to God, and to manifest this offensiveness in a beloved and faithful servant that David himself might be taught never again to dare to commit such wickedness. Still, however, it was not a punishment designed in payment of a kind of compensation to God. In the same way are we to judge of that other correction in which the Lord subjects his people to a grievous pestilence for the disobedience of David in forgetting himself so far as to number the people. He indeed freely forgave David the guilt of his sin, but because it was necessary both as a public example to all ages and also to humble David himself not to allow such an offense to go unpunished, he chastened him most sharply with his whip. We ought also to keep this in view in the universal curse of the human race. For since after obtaining grace we still continue to endure the miseries denounced to our first parent as the penalty of transgression, we ought thereby to be reminded how offensive to God is the transgression of his law, that thus humbled and dejected by a consciousness of our wretched condition, we may aspire more ardently to true happiness. But it were most foolish in any one to imagine that we are subjected to the calamities of the present life for the guilt of sin. This seems to me to have been Chrysostom's meaning when he said, quote, If the purpose of God in inflicting punishment is to bring those persisting in evil to repentance, when repentance is manifested, punishment would be superfluous, unquote. Wherefore, as he knows what the disposition of each requires, he treats one with greater harshness and another with more indulgence. Accordingly, when he wishes to show that he is not excessive in exacting punishment, he upbraids a hard-hearted and obstinate people, because after being smitten, they still continued in sin. Jeremiah 5, verse 3. In the same sense, he complains that, quote, Ephraim is a cake not turned, unquote. Hosea 7, verse 8. Because chastisement did not make a due impression on their minds, and, correcting their vices, make them fit to receive pardon. 
Surely he who thus speaks shows that as soon as any one repents, he will be ready to receive him, and that the rigor which he exercises in chastising faults is wrung from him by our perverseness, since we should prevent him by a voluntary correction. Such, however, being the hardness and rudeness of all hearts, that they stand universally in need of castigation, our infinitely wise parent hath seen it meet to exercise all without exception during their whole lives with chastisement. It is strange how they fix their eyes so intently on the one example of David, and are not moved by the many examples in which they might have beheld the free forgiveness of sins. The publican is said to have gone down from the temple justified. Luke 18, verse 14. No punishment follows. Peter obtained the pardon of his sin. Luke 22, verse 61. Quote, we read of his tears, unquote, says Ambrose. Quote, we read not of satisfaction, unquote. To the paralytic it is said, quote, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee, unquote. Matthew 9, verse 2. No penance is enjoined. All the acts of forgiveness mentioned in Scripture are gratuitous. The rule ought to be drawn from these numerous examples, rather than from one example which contains a kind of specialty. Section 36. Daniel, in exhorting Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sins by righteousness and his iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, Daniel 4, verse 27, meant not to intimate that righteousness and mercy are able to propitiate God and redeem from punishment. Far be it from us to suppose that there ever was any other Greek word, apolutsosis, ransom, than the blood of Christ. But the breaking off referred to in that passage has reference to man rather than to God, as if he had said, O king, you have exercised an unjust and violent domination. You have oppressed the humble, spoiled the poor, treated your people harshly and unjustly. Instead of unjust exaction, instead of violence and oppression, now practice mercy and justice. In like manner, Solomon says that love covers a multitude of sins, not, however, with God, but among men. For the whole verse stands thus, quote, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins, unquote. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Here, after his manner, he contrasts the evils produced by hatred with the fruits of charity in this sense. Those who hate are incessantly biting, carping at, upbraiding, lacerating each other, making everything a fault. But those who love mutually conceal each other's faults, wink at many, forgive many, not that the one approves the vices of the other, but tolerates and cures by admonishing, rather than exasperates by assailing. That the passage is quoted by Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, in the same sense we cannot doubt, unless we would charge him with corrupting our craftily resting scripture. When it is said that, quote, by mercy and truth iniquity is purged, unquote, Proverbs 16, verse 6, the meaning is not that by them compensation is made to the Lord, so that he being thus satisfied remits the punishment which he would otherwise have exacted, but intimation is made after the familiar manner of Scripture, that those who, forsaking their vices and iniquities, turn to the Lord in truth and piety, will find him propitious, as if he had said that the wrath of God is calmed, and his judgment is at rest whenever we rest from our wickedness. But indeed it is not the cause of pardon that is described, but rather the mode of true conversion, just as the prophets frequently declare that it is in vain for hypocrites to offer God fictitious rites instead of repentance, seeing his delight is in integrity and the duties of charity. In like manner also the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, commending kindness and humanity, reminds us that, quote, with such sacrifices God is well pleased, unquote. Hebrews 13, verse 16. And indeed, when Christ, rebuking the Pharisees because intent merely on the outside of the cup and platter, they neglected purity of heart, enjoins them in order that they may be clean in all respects to give alms, does he exhort them to give satisfaction thereby? He only tells them what the kind of purity is which God requires. Of this mode of expression we have treated elsewhere. Matthew 23, verse 25. Luke 11, verses 39 through 41. Section 37, in regard to the passage in Luke, Luke 7, verses 36 and subsequent, no man of sober judgment who reads the parable there employed by our Lord will raise any controversy with us. The Pharisee thought that the Lord did not know the character of the woman whom he had so easily admitted to his presence, for he presumed that he would not have admitted her if he had known what kind of a sinner she was, and from this he inferred that one who could be deceived in this way was not a prophet. 
Our Lord, to show that she was not a sinner, inasmuch as she had already been forgiven, spake this parable. Quote, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him five hundred pence, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? The Pharisee answers, quote, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most, unquote. Then our Savior rejoins, quote, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, unquote. By these words it is plain, he does not make love the cause of forgiveness, but the proof of it. The similitude is borrowed from the case of a debtor, to whom a debt of five hundred pence had been forgiven. It is not said that the debt is forgiven because he loved much, but that he loved much because it was forgiven. The similitude ought to be applied in this way. You think this woman is a sinner, but you ought to have acknowledged her as not a sinner in respect that her sins have been forgiven her. Her love ought to have been to you a proof of her having obtained forgiveness, that love being an expression of gratitude for the benefit received. It is an argument a posteriori by which something is demonstrated by the results produced by it. Our Lord plainly attests the ground on which she had obtained forgiveness when he says, quote, By faith has saved thee, unquote. By faith, therefore, we obtain forgiveness. By love we give thanks, and bear testimony to the loving kindness of the Lord. Section 38 I am little moved by the numerous passages in the writings of the fathers relating to satisfaction. I see indeed that some, I will frankly say almost all, whose books are excellent, have either erred in this manner or spoken to roughly and harshly. But I cannot admit that they were so rude and unskillful as to write these passages in the sense in which they are read by our new satisfactionaries. Chrysostom somewhere says, quote, When mercy is implored, interrogation ceases. When mercy is asked, judgment rages not. When mercy is sought, there is no room for punishment. Where there is mercy, no question is asked. Where there is mercy, the answer gives pardon. Unquote. How much soever these words may be twisted, they can never be reconciled with the dogmas of the schoolmen. In the book, De Dogmatibus Ecclesiasticus, which is attributed to Augustine, you read, quote, The satisfaction of repentance is to cut off the causes of sins, and not to indulge an entrance to their suggestions. Unquote. From this it appears that the doctrine of satisfaction, said to be paid for sins committed, was everywhere derided in those ages. For here the only satisfaction referred to is caution, abstinence from sin for the future. I am unwilling to quote what Chrysostom says, that God requires nothing more of us than to confess our faults before him with tears, as similar sentiments abound both in his writings and those of others. Augustine, indeed, calls works of mercy remedies for obtaining forgiveness of sins. But lest anyone should stumble at the expression, he himself in another passage obviates the difficulty. Quote, the flesh of Christ, unquote, says he, quote, is the true and only sacrifice for sins, not only for those which are all effaced in baptism, but those into which we are afterwards betrayed through infirmity, and because of which the whole church daily cries, quote, forgive us our debts, close, quote, Matthew 6, verse 12, and they are forgiven by that special sacrifice. Unquote. Section 39. By satisfaction, however, they, for the most part, meant not compensation to be paid to God, but the public testimony by which those who had been punished with excommunication and wished again to be received into communion assured the church of their repentance. For those penitents were enjoined certain fasts and other things by which they might prove that they were truly and from the heart weary of their former life, or rather might obliterate the remembrance of their past deeds. In this way they were said to give satisfaction not to God, but to the church. The same thing is expressed by Augustine in a passage in his Enchiridion. From that ancient custom the satisfactions and confessions now in use took their rise. It is indeed a viperish progeny, not even a vestige of the better form now remaining. I know that ancient writers sometimes speak harshly, nor do I deny, as I lately said, that they have perhaps erred, but dogmas which were tainted with a few blemishes, now that they have fallen into the unwashed hands of those men, are altogether defiled. And if we were to decide the contest by authority of the fathers, what kind of fathers are those whom they obtrude upon us? A great part of those from whom Lombard their Corypheus framed his sentos are extracted from the absurd dreams of certain monks passing under the names of Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, and Chrysostom. On the present subject, almost all his extracts are from the book of Augustine, De Penitentia, 
a book absurdly compiled by some rhapsodist, alike from good and bad authors, a book which indeed bears the name of Augustine, but which no person of the least learning would deign to acknowledge as his. Wishing to save my readers trouble, they will pardon me for not searching minutely into all their absurdities. For myself it were not very laborious, and might gain some applause to give a complete exposure of dogmas which have hitherto been vaunted as mysteries. But as my object is to give useful instruction, I desist. Chapter 5 of the Modes of Supplementing Satisfaction, viz. Indulgences and Purgatory. There are ten sections. Section 1. From this dogma of satisfaction, that of indulgences takes its rise. For the pretense is that what is wanting to our own ability is hereby supplied, and they go to the insane length of defining them to be a dispensation of the merits of Christ, and the martyrs which the Pope makes by his bulls. Though they are fitter for hellebore than for argument, and it is scarcely worth while to refute these frivolous errors, which, already battered down, begin of their own accord to grow antiquated and totter to their fall, yet, as a brief refutation may be useful to some of the unlearned, I will not omit it. Indeed, the fact that indulgences have so long stood safe and with impunity, and wantoned with so much fury and tyranny, may be regarded as a proof into how deep a night of ignorance mankind were for some ages plunged. They saw themselves insulted openly and without disguise by the Pope and his bull-bearers. They saw the salvation of the soul made the subject of a lucrative traffic, salvation taxed at a few pieces of money, nothing given gratuitously. They saw what was squeezed from them in the form of oblations, basely consumed on strumpets, pimps, and gluttony. The loudest trumpeters of indulgences being the greatest despisers, they saw the monsters stalking abroad and every day luxurating with greater license, and that without end, new bulls being constantly issued and new sums extracted. Still, indulgences were received with the greatest reverence, worshipped, and bought. Even those who saw more clearly than others deemed them pious frauds, by which, even in deceiving, some good was gained. Now, at length, that a considerable portion of the world have begun to bethink themselves, indulgences grow cool, and gradually even begin to freeze, preparatory to their final extinction. Section 2. But since very many who see the vile imposture, theft, and rapine, with which the dealers in indulgences have hitherto deluded and sported with us, are not aware of the true source of the impiety, it may be proper to show not only what indulgences truly are, but also that they are polluted in every part. They give the name of treasury of the church to the merits of Christ, the holy apostles, and martyrs. They pretend, as I have said, that the radical custody of the granary has been delivered to the Roman bishop, to whom the dispensation of these great blessings belongs in such a sense that he can both exercise it by himself and delegate the power of exercising it to others. Hence we have from the Pope at one time plenary indulgences, at another for certain years, from the cardinals for a hundred days, and from the bishops for forty. These, to describe them truly, are a profanation of the blood of Christ and a delusion of Satan, by which the Christian people are led away from the grace of God and the life which is in Christ, and turned aside from the true way of salvation. For how could the blood of Christ be more shamefully profaned than by denying its sufficiency for the remission of sins, for reconciliation and satisfaction, unless its defects, as if it were dried up and exhausted, are supplemented from some other quarter? Peter's words are, quote, To him give all the prophets witness, that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Unquote. Acts 10, verse 43. But indulgences bestow the remission of sins through Peter, Paul, and the martyrs. Quote, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin, unquote, says John, 1 John 1, verse 7. Indulgences make the blood of the martyrs an ablution of sins. Quote, he hath made him to be sin, that is, a satisfaction for sin, for us who knew no sin, unquote, says Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Quote, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, unquote. Indulgences make the satisfaction of sins depend on the blood of the martyrs. Paul exclaimed and testified to the Corinthians that Christ alone was crucified and died for them, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13. Indulgences declare that Paul and others died for us. Paul elsewhere says that Christ purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. Indulgences assign another purchase to the blood of martyrs, quote, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, unquote, says the Apostle. Hebrews 10, verse 14. 
Indulgences, on the other hand, insist that sanctification, which would otherwise be insufficient, is perfected by martyrs. John says that all the saints, quote, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, unquote. Revelation 7, verse 14. Indulgences tell us to wash our robes in the blood of saints. Section 3. There is an admirable passage in opposition to their blasphemies in Leo, a Roman bishop. Quote, Although the death of many saints was precious in the sight of the Lord, Psalm 116, verse 15, yet no innocent man's slaughter was the propitiation of the world. The just received crowns, did not give them, and the fortitude of believers produced examples of patience, not gifts of righteousness. For their deaths were for themselves, and none by his final end paid the debt of another, except Christ our Lord, in whom alone all are crucified, all dead, buried, and raised up. Unquote. This sentiment, as it was of a memorable nature, he has elsewhere repeated. Certainly one could desire a clearer confutation of this impious dogma. Augustine introduces the same sentiment, not less appositely. Quote, Although brethren die for brethren, yet no martyr's blood is shed for the remission of sins. This Christ did for us, and in this conferred upon us not what we should imitate, but what should make us grateful. Unquote. Again, in another passage, quote, As he alone became the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he might make us to be with himself sons of God, so he alone, without any ill desert, undertook the penalty for us, that through him we might, without good desert, obtain undeserved favor. Unquote. Indeed, as their whole doctrine is a patchwork of sacrilege and blasphemy, this is the most blasphemous of the whole. Let them acknowledge whether or not they hold the following dogmas, that the martyrs by their death performed more to God and merited more than was necessary for themselves, and they have a large surplus of merits which may be applied to others, that in order that this great good may not prove superfluous, their blood is mingled with the blood of Christ, and out of both is formed the treasury of the church for the forgiveness and satisfaction of sins, and that in this sense we must understand the words of Paul, quote, Who now rejoice in my sufferings, and fill up that which is behind the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, unquote. Colossians 1, verse 24. What is this but merely to leave the name of Christ, and at the same time make him a vulgar saintling, who can scarcely be distinguished in the crowd? He alone ought to be preached, alone held forth, alone named, alone looked to, whenever the subject considered is the obtaining of the forgiveness of sins, expiation, and sanctification. But let us hear their propositions, that the blood of martyrs may not be shed without fruit, it must be employed for the common good of the church. Is it so? Was there no fruit in glorifying God by death, in sealing his truth with their blood, in testifying by contempt of the present life that they looked for a better? in confirming the faith of the church, and at the same time disabling the pertinacity of the enemy by their constancy? But thus it is. They acknowledge no fruit if Christ is the only propitiation, if he alone died for our sins, if he alone was offered for our redemption. Nevertheless, they say, Peter and Paul would have gained the crown of victory, though they had died in their beds a natural death. But as they contended to blood, it would not accord with the justice of God to leave their doing so barren and unfruitful as if God were unable to augment the glory of his servants in proportion to the measure of his gifts. The advantage derived in common by the church is great enough when, by their triumphs, she is inflamed with zeal to fight. Section 4. How maliciously they rest the passage in which Paul says that he supplies in his body that which was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Colossians 1, verse 24. That defect or supplement refers not to the work of redemption, satisfaction, or expiation, but to those afflictions with which the members of Christ, in other words, all believers, behoved to be exercised so long as they are in the flesh. He says, therefore, that part of the sufferings of Christ still remains, viz., that what he suffered in himself he daily suffers in his members. Christ so honors us as to regard and count our afflictions as his own. By the additional words, for the church, Paul means not for the redemption or reconciliation or satisfaction of the church, but for edification and progress. As he elsewhere says, quote, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, unquote. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. He also writes to the Corinthians, quote, 
Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 6. In the same place, he immediately explains his meaning by adding that he was made a minister of the church, not for redemption, but according to the dispensation which he received to preach the gospel of Christ. But if they still desire another interpreter, let them hear Augustine. Quote, the sufferings of Christ are in Christ alone, as in the head, in Christ and the church, as in the whole body. Hence Paul, being one member, says, inner quote, I fill up in my body that which is behind of the sufferings of Christ. Close inner quote. Therefore, O hearer, whoever you be, if you are among the members of Christ, whatever you suffer from those who are not members of Christ, was lacking to the sufferings of Christ. Unquote. He elsewhere explains the end of the sufferings of the apostles undertaken for Christ. Quote, Christ is my door to you, because ye are the sheep of Christ, purchased by his blood. Acknowledge your price, which is not paid by me, but preached by me. Unquote. He afterwards adds, quote, As he laid down his life, so ought we to lay down our lives for the brethren to build up peace and maintain faith. Unquote. Thus far, Augustine. Far be it from us to imagine that Paul thought anything was wanting to the sufferings of Christ in regard to the complete fullness of righteousness, salvation, and life, or that he wished to make any addition to it, after showing so clearly and eloquently that the grace of Christ was poured out in such rich abundance as far to exceed all the power of sin. Romans 5, verse 15. All saints have been saved by it alone, not by the merit of their own life or death, as Peter distinctly testifies, Acts 15, verse 11, so that it is an insult to God and his anointed to place the worthiness of any saint in anything save the mercy of God alone. But why dwell longer on this, as if the matter were obscure, when to mention these monstrous dogmas is to refute them? This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 free states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.